In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Something very dreamlike about Advent. It's a time of waiting, and time in Advent is almost regulated like a dream. There's no before or after. Things stretch, things shrink. Jesus himself is conspicuous by his absence. He's off the stage. And today, in our reading, uh, even though this particular liturgy, the fourth advent, is dedicated to Mary, uh, she is also absent. She is referred to. We've had the beautiful uh, carol by Sabine Berengold, the Anglican priest, who also gave us onward Christian soldiers, I should add, very much yin and yin and yang of, of Anglicanism in this, in this one, uh, one dear soul. In this very exquisitely sensitive um, carol, Basque carol, that he has uh, translated, gives us everything we need to know about the Annunciation. Annunciation happens in March. We don't usually note it. I pray that will change. But what we're looking at in all of these whose voices we have heard in the season of Advent are those who were willing to hear and to do the will of God and whose willingness to respond in uh, hearing and in action opened the way for God to do his work of grace. Intervening within creation itself by becoming a creature in order that creation might as a whole be redeemed, rescued from the curse that had cast its long shadow over it from the fall. Mary, in her act of total surrender, sets in motion this movement of emancipation. Her simple fiat, yes, let it be done according to your will, constitutes the declaration of dependence of the church, our dependence upon the will of God for our will and of our obedience for our perfect freedom. Mary, of course, is off stage this week, as is Jesus even now in her womb. Joseph occupies our attention. And as the covenant representative of captive Israel, an occupied nation sold into slavery again and now a vassal state for imperial Rome, he takes his place. Political machinations have set up the scene, but they are also in the wings. And today's text is concerned with the events of a dream, Joseph's dream. Not like the dream of his namesake, Joseph, who in Genesis 37 had that wonderful dream which spoke of human ascendancy to a place of power and prestige. No, this Joseph's dream is rather a movement of downward mobility. And if the original Joseph unwittingly brought Israel into an Egyptian captivity, he would not live to see. This Joseph, descended from David, will, with painful deliberation, lead not just Israel, but all of humanity one step closer to deliverance. That careful listening and a predisposition for action are two things, essential things, that are not to be taken for granted as established by the context, the old Testament reading, Isaiah. The king Ahaz, Ahaz, who lacks in listening and in acting. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. 
let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, sparing the, if you like, offense to the honor of God that he might give by asking a leading question. Well, we know where that path goes. No tree can reach to heaven, a wise man once said, unless its roots reach down to hell, to Sheol. Ahaz does not only not seek conversation with God, he shuts God down when one is initiated. God gives him a sign anyway, which he ignores to his cost. Now, when we look at the actual content of the sign God gives, it's not to be surprised that Ahaz backs off. The actual message is somewhat opaque. The talk of virgins conceiving, Emmanuel, God with us, and a son who will outlive the two powerful nations at his doorstep that are waiting in time to cause Ahaz so many sleepless nights. Now, sleep is significant, as I have said, and it is remarkable the extent to which God uses our dreams for access to our souls, not just to our minds, but to our subconscious, evidently. For his revelation is intended not just for rational desiccation, but for the poetic intuition, the matrix of inspired action. Joseph does not know that Mary has had her own revelation and is indeed a matrix of her own. The inspiration of the spirit will move from the mind to the body in her in a uniquely concrete way and has already done so. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is just not in our sense of justice, getting your own back, getting what's coming to you, getting what even, getting even. This is justice in the sense of being right with God, a different kind of righteousness altogether. It's to do more with mercy and loving kindness. And as Joseph considers these things, the text goes on. He goes from fight or flight to the realm of rest and digest. He goes to prayer to brood over what he has learned. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, as angels like to appear to those in prayer. Joseph's compassion under duress stamps him as one of the true heroes of the faith that he cannot quite conceive that Mary has conceived under these special circumstances, but requires these witnesses for the depths of his being, suggests that Joseph is a man disposed to go to prayer and seek God's voice, as is Mary, not to his Twitter account to vent over the slings and arrows that have come his way, but to rest and digest. A quote I saw recently said, and, and I quote, the more passionate you are about fighting, the more unlikely it is that God is fighting with you. That is, the more unlikely that God is fighting for you on your side or you on his. We're called to fight. The passion is what leads us astray. Look for passion in Joseph and you will not see it. You will see acquiescence, the opposite of passion, just as Mary has done an utter emptying of self, a kenosis. 
He absorbs the loss, the degradation, the punch in the solar plexus. He takes a breath and takes it in, the injustice, just as Mary has. He takes it into himself. Joseph, Jesus chose his parents well, we might say, tongue-in-cheek, but we should watch our tongues. We are on holy ground indeed with these two. And if our Protestant tradition has chosen to relegate both Mary and Joseph to the sidelines, it is an unwarranted act of willful neglect. They are far more than pawns being moved around the chessboard in order to provide and give cover to divine progeny. They are, on the contrary, models of pure faith whose witness is unsurpassed in Scripture and whose value for us is unsurpassable, save in the Lord Jesus himself. It is just that capacity, that predisposition acquired at cost and in time to act on God's command, regardless of the havoc it makes of their lives, separate or conjoined, that should cause us to stop, wonder, and give thanks for their witness, to wonder if we could respond as they did, to give thanks that we have not been asked yet for none of them have any inkling of all the paint and plaster that will be used in an attempt to honor their meritorious deeds, and chances are they could care less. All they see is a very dark road below and a very bright light above, and that light suffices. The simple command and their immediate obedient response is all that they ask, and it's all that they get this side of glory. When Paul speaks of the obedience of faith among the many, many things which we're sweating about what that means, whose faith, whose obedience, this is surely part of what he has in mind. I am not sure we might call it joyful obedience. Such joy as this, most of us do not and will not know perhaps and aren't looking to, but it is not the obedience of a slave or a robot. It is an obedience freely given by those who know the cost, and yet surely contemplate the reward, which is not a crown of glory. It is the simple ascent of the lover to the beloved. It is a pure act of love, the love of those for whom to please their Lord is the greatest delight that their heart can conceive. Oh, that we might be among their number. There is nothing I would pray for more for you or for me, believe me, than that our hearts too would be tuned and turned this way more often than not. And they could be. And they want to be, by which I mean that it is the heart's own predisposition before the fall, to be tuned Godward, to be attuned to God's desires and deaf to its own. I'll jump out of time for a second and you'll bear with me. One of the great Anglican collects, the one collect which I believe sums up the whole thing for Easter 4, sorry, reads, and I quote, O almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, 
and women, grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest and desire that which thou dost promise, that so among the sundry and manifold changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. We know more and more that our restless hearts have only one true object, and that one true object is the one true subject, God himself. And when we are, as the collect says, in the condition in which we do indeed love the thing which God has commanded and desire that which he has promised, then we are happy, more happy than anything in this world can make us. We are in the place just right where true joys are to be found fixed and with our affections fastened to that by which and for which they were formed. Perfect freedom. What we want to do and what God wants done are one and the same. But this change, as has been said, cannot come from the top down or from the outside in. The law, any ought whatsoever, anything legislated is only triage, a handrail, a splint. And just laying down the law to someone will only teach their heart to dissimulate, to resist, to go into passive-aggressive mode, or to feign assent, angry as a slave inside and showing servility, not growing a servant heart. We grow from the inside out, from the heart out in Christ, and look again and again at Mary and at Joseph in real time, no time to think, no time to consider, seeing whatever happiness they had in hand being taken from them as they were directed to open their hands and their hearts for something else. God has a way of taking us a long way out of our way so that he can bring us home. But bring us home, he will. And the greatest proof is in the home he made right here for himself. So that despised and rejected by his own on earth, he could open for his own the gates of heaven. Let the glory of that new heaven and that new earth fill our hearts in this season of wonder as we seek to recapture the simple joy of obedience from the heart. Amen.